Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. For the first time ever today on The Grill is reviewing a book. And I'm guessing many listeners might have guessed the book, which is a must-read for many of the subscribers to Beef Central because the book covers a wide expanse, but most of it centres on the northern cattle industry and stories are wide, wild, fascinating and mostly true. Let's welcome the woman who is the title of the wonderful read, not just the wife of the general manager, Sally Warner. Welcome, you're on the grill with Beef Central. Hi, Kerry. First of all, congratulations. It's a, it's a great read and I think I told you several years ago, you were an excellent writer, you should write a book and it's come out so well. I'm impressed you actually slowed down your life enough to take time to actually write the book. It's just terrific. Thanks, Terry. I don't know how I did it either. I don't know. And my life didn't slow down. It uh, accelerated, but <laughs> at least it's uh, on the shelf now, so I'm very pleased with myself. Sal, I'm guessing here, but so much of your story requires your presence and your skills as a nurse, which you started as a 16-year-old out of Toowoomba down to hospital in Canberra. Is that right? Yes, that's right. But uh, the reason I went to Canberra was because Dad got a job in Canberra and he transferred with his work to Canberra when I was 16. So that's why I did my nursing training down there which basically changed my life, going from country Queensland to Canberra in the uh, late 60s with the uh, moratorium out now and drug, sex, rock and roll. (laughs) And and You've had some extraordinary adventures, which you outline in Chapter 1, but the book is, uh, as you told me, it's not about that. It's about your life across northern Australia. So you go overseas, you come home, and you end up at the Broom Cup, at the Broom Cup race meeting, where you actually meet the general manager, as in the title of the book. That's right. That's that's how it happened. I'd spent four and a half years backpacking around the world, basically, and done two post-grad nursing degrees and arrived back in Australia with my boyfriend at the time. In fact, he was my fiancé at the time. And we hitchhiked up the West Australian coast to Broome, which was where my sister and her husband were living. Uh, David was a vet. And they had had two children in my absence, so I thought I would be good to go and see my uh, uh, nephews uh, before I went back to Canberra to sort out my life. So, as I said, we got a lift with a truckie uh, loaded, three dogs up, and he dropped us off at the entrance to the broom races. And I knew Susan would be there. So, off we get from the truck, and I've got on a long floral dress and Jesus sandals and a headband and plaits and beads and a backpack. And Force had a backpack and uh, hair and a ponytail and an earring a bit off centre because I'd uh, pierced it a bit crooked one night when I was um, stoned in London. And he had a sarong, a singlet and Jesus sandals and a backpack with our worldly possessions. And off we go up the road to the broom races. And uh, my sister looks down the road and the GM says to her, oh, my God, will you have a look at what the cat dragged in? (laughs) So 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 it wasn't love at first sight. It wasn't love at first sight, but it was uh, love at first sight with the bush. And after a while there, you knew you wanted to come back, didn't you? Yes, I completely fell in love with the country, the Kimberley. I just felt that it was the most beautiful place I'd ever been, even though I'd spent all those years traveling some of the world's most beautiful places. It was really my sole country, I felt, and it still is. 
So what attracted you to Ken Warren, a widower, two young boys, in a land of tough men, reputedly one of the toughest men around? Uh, at the t- Yes. At the time, I didn't have any experience with um, cattle people at all. So it was I was flying blind, really. I got a job in the Broome Hospital as a nurse, uh, decided to stay. My fiancé went back to Canberra to join the diplomatic corps where he eventually ended up. And I started dating a series of, um, of, of cattlemen out there, I guess. They all flew into and out of Broome or we moved to Kununurra. And I started going out to the stations and just getting to know station life, I guess. The GM was probably the wildest and the most exciting and had the best plane. And um, I, it was a gradual, wasn't it gradual really, I guess. Um, I guess I just made a decision that that's where I wanted to be. I fell in love with him and I fell in love with the Kimberley. So, and you agree- and I'm still yeah. in love with the Kimberley. Yeah, fair enough. So you agree to marry him and you call, yep. it, all, call it off at the last minute. Yes, that was a bit of a, a catastrophe really. I can't really explain why except to say that I really felt it was a bit of a whirlwind and that I hadn't been fair or kind to my ex-fiancé who, with whom I uh, had a relationship for eight years, really, on and off over the time that we had been travelling together. And I felt that what I had done was unkind and I hadn't thought it through properly and that I really shouldn't be throwing, I shouldn't be getting married again without making peace with myself and with him, really. I had no intention of going back to him, but I just wanted to be alone, think it through, make sure I was making the right decision. So unfortunately, it wasn't until the day before the wedding that I actually decided that I was leaving and going back. Uh, I made, uh, and I regret what happened on all counts there. It was a disaster. So you bush can, you go to Canberra, you make your peace sort of in a way with your former fiancé, and then you ask Ken to forgive you, will you have me back? That's yes, a- I did. Yeah. I did. I, I went to straight into a midwifery course in Canberra. I moved back into the nurse's home sort of five years down the track and started studying midwifery. And I wrote to Ken every week or every two weeks, I guess. I sent him a, a hand-wrote a letter to him. And then after four months, he started writing back talking about the wonderful new governess he had and she could do this and that and she was a wonderful governess and a teacher and she made the right um, corn meat sandwiches for him and she was a very good horsewoman and I thought, oh goodness, she's going to be adding another role to her list of duties in that household if I don't make up my mind. So I did. I wrote back and said, look, I think I've made a mistake. Will you forgive me? And he said yes. Oh wow! And you and you went back and you were married almost immediately. That well, was, that was the deal. Yes, and, uh, you, there are so many stories, so all of them intriguing and funny, or indeed sad. But uh, let me run through a few topics. Your growing relationship with the indigenous communities—that was—that's part of your stories and part of your life from then on, aren't they? Yes. Well, they were. I, I was nursing all the time that I was out there. I was out there for twenty-five years, and 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 I was always working as a nurse. So I was either working. You know, in the early days, I was working in the hospitals in Kununurra and um, Broome, and then later um, I had a black box, which is what they called the sort of in those days. And we're talking nineteen seventy-six here. They had a black box, which was supplied by the Flying Doctor. 
and the station manager's wife, um, or if there was a nurse available, would manage the black box and do the uh, manage the treatment over the flying doctor network. I was a registered nurse. I kept my registration going, so I was used far more often in larger circumstance by the flying doctor in the whole community. So I was often looking after an Aboriginal community of sort of 200 people. Um, Mount House was smaller than that, but Brunette Downs had 200 people on and off, as did Newcastle Waters. So they were very much part of my life, having had nothing to do with Indigenous people um, in, in Toowoomba uh, until I actually started working in the hospital in Broome and delivering babies and just lo- loving them all. Well, they're a large part of your book, uh, Salia. And I understand once you were on the receiving end of some advice from the famous Fred Hollows. Indeed I was. Uh, he came to um, Brunette Downs doing a uh, trachoma survey. Trachoma is a disease of the eyes. It's a disease of poor hygiene. It's a, it's, a, it's a developing world disease that very sadly still exists. Basically, it uh, happens to people who don't have enough clean running water, which was the case in the, in the camps that the Indigenous people lived in in those days. And I ran a clinic looking after all those people all the time. And, and I do say in the book that I look back and I think what Fred Hollow said was right. As we were leaving, we went down to the camp, we did a survey, and then I invited him back to the homestead for a cup of tea. And he's a very gruff, he was a, a very gruff man with graying, hooded eyebrows and small, short and nuggety and very intense and just had a wonderful soul. You could feel it in him. And he turned to me quietly and said, how can you live like this in this homestead and be looking after 200 people living in this appalling third world circumstances? I don't know how you live with yourself. And he wasn't being, he wasn't meaning to be rude. The way he delivered it was kindly almost. And it gave me such a shock, as you can imagine. But I am ashamed to say that I realised that over the years that there was so very little that I could do to change anything. And it was a very long time before I realised that I couldn't live with myself and watch what was happening. Yeah. Let's take a quick break from our Beef Central podcast with a message from our sponsor, Alenco Animal Health. Don't let your cattle suffer the setbacks caused by buffalo fly. Combat buffalo fly with Corral, Patriot and Silence insecticidal ear tags. Providing up to four months of long-lasting fly control. Alanco has you covered with a range of ear tags to suit your rotation program. Contact Alanco and find out how you can win the buffalo fly battle now. You're back on the grill with Kerry Lonigan on Beef Central and our guest today, Sally Warner, author of I'm Not Just the Wife of the General Manager. Uh, plane crashes, Sal, uh, planes and choppers are part of life across the north, but you were, went through some misadventures, including your very own wheels up landing. Indeed, yes. Um, we were firefighting in November. It was uh, visibility. Ken was flying uh, his um, Bonanza which is a single-engine, low-winged aircraft yeah, with, a v, with retractable with, undercarriage. And a V-tail, I remember those, yes. And there's an old saying amongst pilots that there's uh, pilots who fly fixed-wing and retractable who have done a wheels-up 
and there are those who will. Well, that was a prediction in uh, in our case. It was a relatively, it was a new job. Brunette Dance was a new job. It was a bad fire. We were out spotting the fire. The grader was downgrading it. It was, it, all the updraft was coming from the flames. It was smoky. The prop was throwing oil on the windscreen. The visibility was poor. The GM was agitated because he could see the grader going in the wrong direction, possibly towards the fire. He needed to warn him of that. So he decided to drop to land and the pilot would have, the grader driver was going to see us land and would have pulled up and come towards the plane. So he came in to land. I'm looking out my side of the windscreen because I've got less oil on the windscreen and I sort of knew about height and distance and I'm saying, there, you're right here, you've got another, yes, yes, bring it in. But I must have got that wrong because he um, dropped it in too late and we had to go around to come again. So as he, as we're heading towards the end of the strip, knowing we weren't going to be able to pull up before hitting the scrub, he pulled it back, tried to get some lift, came around again and didn't realise that he hadn't put the wheels down again oh, until it was too late. Oh, dear. Oh, so dear. we hit the strip, the, the turns up the airstrip, there's terrible, I mean, it was crash, bang, it was awful, the propeller sheared off. He held it straight, he didn't uh, flip it with the wings or anything. And I'm a bit, I was a bit shocked. He got one door out of the aircraft, he's a big, strong man, I was frozen reached over, undid my seatbelt, picked me up by the scruff of the neck and more or less threw me out onto the wing and said, run, run, we're, we could catch on fire. So I oh. ran, ran, and when the dust settled and I looked around, there's the GM wandering around the plane going, what the F, what the F, look what I've done, I've crashed the Bonanza. New job, I can't believe I've crashed the effing Bonanza. And I'm thinking, what about your poor wife of 18 months? <laughs> No, obviously he could see that I was okay. He must have seen me run away, realised I was okay. But the big concern was the new bonanza. Look, I want to, <laughs> I want, I want to mention a couple of crashes. The the next one, you had the ominous call indicating a plane carrying one of your sons, Jock, was missing. Well, it was two sons. It was David, the my eldest stepson. He was flying the plane. Jock, my eldest birth son, who was eight years old, was in the back with Buff the dog. And there was a, a photographer, a cameraman and a director because they'd been shooting a film on Newcastle Waters and we were heading for Humbert River where they were going to do some more filming. And they were in a 182, heavily loaded. David was big. The, the producer was big. They had potatoes, pumpkins, saddles, the dog, Jesse, everything in the back of the, uh, in the, back of the plane. Anyway, David called a May Day saying that he was going to crash land. So the GM called me from the office in the homestead and said, look, they've gone in, stay here and listen to the radio. Well, there was no way I was going to do that. So I ran across to the airstrip, insisted on getting in the plane. The GM's flying the plane with the policeman from Elliot in the front. I'm in the back and we're looking for this crash plane with two sons on board. It could have been 20 minutes, could have been a lifetime. I don't know. And we're just scanning the bush for signs of a crashed aircraft. And what had happened was they'd had an engine failure um, and, and he was, David knew the country well. He knew that there was a fence line about eight kilometres away. He knew he was going to lose a thousand metres every minute. He had about eight minutes to get to the fence line, which was only one cut of the grader. It was, there only, it was completely surrounded by scrubs. So for eight minutes, 
the cameraman filmed it going down, down, down. No one said anything in that aircraft for those eight minutes, including the eight-year-old jock, except David at the end yelled out, open the doors before impact. Because if the, if you if you crash with closed doors you, you and the plane ignites, you might not be able to get out. So they opened the doors, and Chuck and the dog were thrown out of the back through the crash through the they were, they were upside down. And so we're flying, flying, flying. There's two Qantas planes. There's a northern neighbour. There was us. Then there was the chopper from VRD. All these five aircraft calling coordinates. Anyway, finally, um, John Weymouth from VRD called out on the radio, I can see them, I can see them, there's smoke up ahead. The GM turned around and looked at me and we, I didn't say a word, I didn't say a word because smoke usually means the, the plane's on fire and it's not going to be good news. Anyway, a minute later, I don't know, two minutes later, Weymouth calls out, it's okay, it's okay, I can see both the dogs. And Ken goes, F both the dog, where are the kids? And then he calls out, it's okay, I can see the kids, David's waving at me, the plane's not good, but I can see Jock and I can see both, they're okay, they're okay. So by that time, I'm, I don't know, I can't describe how I was. So we couldn't land, obviously, we went back to the station, I ran over to the clinic, got everything ready, and that's what we did, the um, a doctor from Elliot. Um, but the flying doctor had actually been alerted. He had arrived. Um, I had to do the initial first aid. I stitched up the producer's face, and I have to say, he's written to me since and said that I he did a bit of it had to be. He had to have plastic surgery, but what I did was a pretty damn good job. So I'm proud of that. And a guy with a broken back, fortunately, um, hadn't had any spinal um, damage, so he's wow. uh, walking again. So, so, no, that was a bit of a so, trauma. So, a uh, happy ending to that. Uh, happy ending to that were one. There some tragic stories up there. Yes, you feel very alone when you're it. T- tell me, look, you started to get involved with Kerry Packer when he bought into the Newcastle Waters operation. He actually made his first trip, I understand, to visit Newcastle Waters as part of a recovery program from a heart attack. His first, yeah, night right. at, at first night at Newcastle Waters must have been some experience because it was more or less a fibro shack in those days, wasn't it? Well, no, the fibro shack was the upgrade. Um, we we upgrade. were living in at the time in the old stone house, which was sort of built in 1894, and it was one of those old thick stone and pise houses with an outside dunny and 12-volt wiring and no kitchen and small rooms, to, you know, and dark. For the um, to keep it cool in the summer and warm in the winter, and we were living in there. And um, Packer and his entourage arrived because he had been planning an overseas trip and was not allowed to travel because he'd had a minor heart attack. And he decided he'd come and visit us as sort of part of the safari that um, he was going on. So they and they all had swags. I mean, they had a huge carrot. They had caribous and. Uh, Iroquois helicopters and enough ammunition to knock out Timor and <laughs> and uh, you know enough glamping equipment to um, support a small country for several years. But I, I had to find a bed for Kerry. So um, Vicky was away at boarding school. She had a tiny little room, so I prepared that room for Packer. And it was November. So it was hot and the wet was coming and it just happened to be one of those nights when the bugs came in heralding rain the next day. So this swarm of bugs came in. It was stinking hot. The bed wasn't particularly comfortable. 
So in the night, unbeknownst to me, Packer drags his mattress out underneath the rain tree, which is just outside the homestead, and camps underneath the rain tree. So there's this mound of a man covered with a sheet because the bugs were falling out of the rain tree on top of him as all the jackaroos walked past and went to work. Uh, and he didn't get up until 8 o'clock. The men were long gone by then. But uh, he did say, uh, uh, fortuitously, he had that night in, the, in that uh, old stone house. Because when he did eventually buy Newcastle Waters from us, he said, well, the first thing I'm going to do is build a decent homestead. I never want to spend another night <laughs> in that effing house. The only thing that's missing from there is the bars on the windows. Time for a quick break from our podcast with uh, Sally Warner. A message now from our sponsor, Kelly's Finance. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. You're back on the Grills Beef Central and our guest today, Sally Warner, author of Not Just the Wife of the General Manager. So after three kids up there, and unique experiences, many of them which are in your book, uh, you do in bush terms split the blanket. There were many reasons, I guess, but one moment when a magazine writer was interviewing the GM about life at uh, Newcastle Waters, you hardly rated a mention when the GM was talking about life at, at Newcastle Waters. Yeah, that's true. That was about four years before I did actually leave, and uh, there was a we had had a lot written about uh, Newcastle Waters, of course, because it was one of the bigger pastoral um, properties, and we were quite used to having reporters there writing things. Anyway, this bloke was um, uh, quite a well-known reporter for the Australian. Surprise, surprise! And um, he he was writing for a coffee table book about the major pastoral com- uh, um, uh, major pastoral companies in Australia. So, and I knew him socially actually. And he he was in the homestead for four days. He followed Ken around. I made his meals, did his room, looked after him, and I was doing what I do, which is multitasking, basically, running the my side of the operation from the hub, the kitchen of the homestead and my office. And um, he stayed for four days, wrote a lot and didn't ask, didn't speak to me, didn't ask for um, any information from me at all. And I didn't ask him. I didn't approach him. I thought, well, if he's not interested, I'm not interested. Yeah. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, I get the draft of the article because the GM always gave me any of the, the most of the work that he sent out. Um, he got me to proofread. So um, because it was Packer, we had right of edit. I proofread the article, four and a half glowing pages about what a fantastic cattleman, what a marvelous bloke, what a, a glowing, glowing, glowing <laughs> about the huge achievement of the general manager. And I got three lines which said. 
Ken's attractive and vivacious wife, Sally, spends her time in the homestead entertaining and looking after her children and vast menagerie and wonderful garden. (laughs) So I read that, three lines, and I walked into his office. I put it down on his desk and I said, if that gets published, I'm suing for defamation. (laughs) So your book is about the use of your nursing skills on so many occasions – how your book's s- about me. Yeah, well, it's about you <laughs> and your, the exploitation of your nursing skills. Uh, uh, how yes. many stitches do you think you put in accident victims up there over the years? Oh, goodness me. I mean, there was there was there wouldn't have been a week go past in 20 years, yeah. 25 years, that there wasn't some sort of major injury. Unfortunately, including my boys, um, it's pretty hard to have your little toddler yeah. held down mm. on the kitchen bench. But to, to get them to hospital was probably even more uh, traumatic, and they would have just been held down by someone that they didn't know. So, and I'm proud to say none of them have got very big scars to show for it, yeah. or they haven't physically, whether they have emotionally or not. I'm not quite sure. Just as well you were a nurse, I suspect I doubt you would have survived up there without that background with uh, dealing with people in in uh, difficult circumstances. Oh, I would have to say that there's every bushwoman I know has had to deal with far more than that that, that they, they were prepared for. You just simply have to do it. And so many bushwomen, women who are not registered nurses, have really been heroes when it comes to running their boxes and looking after the medical staff, the medical health of, of all of their staff and a lot of the Indigenous people. So I'm in no way unique. It was just that I was a registered nurse yes. and therefore I had more equipment and more drugs available. So looking back now, would you, what do you, did you imagine life might be uh, like when you were up there at the broom races and moving to the local hospital and looking forward? Do you, you look back, did you ever imagine your life from then? No, I didn't. I, I, ca- I cannot remember, and I could well have forgotten, but I cannot remember thinking this is just too hard, too isolated, too foreign to me. I, I, I can't remember ever thinking this is too hard until it was, and then it was too late. Any regrets, Sal, at all? You've had such an adventurous... Regrets? Of course, there's, you, know, you can't live a big life or anybody who doesn't have any regrets in their life can't have really stuck their neck out very far. So I, I probably was more adventurous than a lot and so I've got probably more regrets. But I have to say there's not, a, there's not many things in those 25 years out there that I would change. It was just the most wonderful life and it was the most wonderful place to bring up children. They've all turned out really well, so I can't have done that bad a job. Yes, agreed. Now, look, um, I look forward to reading about all your adventures that are not in the book in your next book. Exactly. It's going to be called The Black Label <laughs> Version, yes, and it's only for close friends and family. <laughs> so, no, it'll be widespread read. I, widespread, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look forward to it, but congratulations. What I really on, wanted to say is what, what it's going to be called. What I really wanted to say. <laughs> it's your, look, your book is an outstanding publication. It's a great read and extremely well written. Congratulations. Uh, Sally, Thank thanks you. for being with us on The Grill. Thank you for asking me. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan and this is The Weekly Grill brought to you by Alenko Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group.